A Qantas A330 is doing a flight from Singapore to Perth when something happened on the way. What caused this flight to land early due to chaos? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. I'm sorry if you hear squeaking. Milo got a new toy, and he's very enthusiastic. And he's... we keep throwing it elsewhere, so he'll go elsewhere, and he keeps coming back. And he likes this toy. The, see, this is that double-edged sword. If we take it away from him, he'll find something else to get into. He'll be madness. He'll be chaos. If we leave him be with the toy, he won't do these things. He'll just make squeaks yeah. all of the time. <laughs> During the entire episode. <laughs> So you'll just have to enjoy his joy. Yes. And happiness. Yes. Joy and happiness of life. This is also kind of late, but preemptive warning. If you are listening on speakers and you also have dogs that like squeaky things, it might be a mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some kind of trigger warning for your dog. Long into the speaker. I hate when I'm watching a TV show and they use a doorbell and then Milo goes, ape crap. Yeah. yeah, it's that. Anyway, so welcome to the beginning of our chaotic episode. Thanks this- to our new patron. Yes, Manu. Manu? Manu. 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 You. One of those. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being a patron. I have to assume you're somewhere in Europe because you used a euro. Yes. Thanks. Thank you. And submit your stories as our public service announcement for every episode, it seems like, forever. Submit your stories. We appreciate it. If I just called you out as having a dog that likes squeaky toys. Speaking of which. Like that. Go check out our merch store. There's stuff for your dogs. There is. With our logo emblazoned on it. That makes it more fun. One of the things I did want to do before we dove into this here too deeply is... That's, That's a really bad pun. You should not use that pun. Whoever's listening to this. Come yes. back to that pun later, yes, okay. and you will realize. We did forget to say thanks to who recommended our episode last week, and we realized that after we after recorded recording. everything. <laughs> I think it was David, wasn't it? It was David. Sorry, David. Thank you. David R. <laughs> David R. The David, the infamous the David. The infamous David. Thank you for recommending that one, David. Sorry yeah, we didn't. So sorry. <laughs> Go check out Patreon, because you just missed a bunch of blooper reel content. So much stuff. So, Miranda... What are we covering today, Nick? Today, (laughs) we are covering Qantas Flight 72. Thank you to Ash and Brett for recommending this episode. Thanks! Chris, get your act together. I know. You're our resident Aussie. Yeah, but this is a Western Australia thing. Oh. This is different. We'll get there. This occurred on October 7th of 2008. Not that long ago. No, not that long ago. This is an Airbus A330-300 with the tail number Victor Hotel-Quebec Papa Alpha. And this is the A330. I know we've talked about it in the past, but just for a refresher, it's a wide body, so it's a large aircraft, but it's a twin-engine, super-capable airplane, flies very long distances, holding well over 300 people. So it is a workhorse. It is, I think it's the wide body that's been used by more airlines than any other wide body in history. What is its Boeing equivalent? The 777. Well, hot damn. Yep. It's pretty comparable to a 777-200. 
even the 300, but the 300, it's bigger. Have we flown on one? On an A330? No. Oh. I have, and I know you guys have not. We'll we'll do that one of these days. We were gonna. Yes, we were gonna when we we were gonna fly to Paris, from Paris to Seattle on one. Oh yeah. But we didn't do that. I flew on one for eleven hours from San Francisco to Dublin. Oh yeah. It was great because nobody was sitting next to me. I had an economy couch. <laughs> I had an economy couch. <laughs> I had an economy couch yesterday. You want something? Which is only a two seats, though. It's only two seats, but it was comfortable. Luke got an upgrade. Well, good upgraded. for Luke. He was like, this never happens, and honestly, I'm so disenchanted by it. Now I don't even care. <laughs> we were on an Embraer anyways for a 50-minute flight. Anyway. Anyway. This was a flight from Singapore to Perth okay. in Australia. Pretty straightforward. Singapore in Singapore. <laughs> oh, and something that you should have caught earlier, which I had to remind Miranda of. This is a Qantas flight, which means... Yep. Two very important things if you know anything about Qantas. There's no whole loss. Yep. Number and one. Nobody died. Correct. So, things you know. That doesn't make this any less dramatic. Yeah, I bet not. Oh, also, you're going to have some serious flashbacks. You are. You're going to have flashbacks from something we've covered recently... I'm assuming you cover all the warnings. Yes, basically okay. I do. And then you're also going to have flashbacks to things that have happened that we specifically have not covered quite deliberately. Okay. So. There's only one crash I can think of that has to do with that. So. You'll, you'll see. You'll, I, I know you're going to try to guess this one. I know you will. <laughs> and you're going to be I correct. I try to guess. And you're, you're correct well, my job. Of the time. <laughs> right. She won't be right about the reason. She will be right about what's happening. Yeah, sort so. of. We'll see how she does. This is called foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Explicit foreshadowing. <laughs> Fair warning, this story might be a little bit longer, and there's a reason for that. That's because this, be it that this was not a complete disaster, it still was very dramatic, and we'll get into why. The captain for this flight was Kevin Sullivan. He was 53 years old at the time. He had 13,592 hours total, of which 2,453 hours were on the A330. He's American. He is American. He was a U.S. Navy pilot. Huh. Which I missed that when I was watching the Air Disasters episode. I'm like, wait, he has an American accent. They yeah. are usually pretty good about that. Yep. And not only was he U.S., he was a U.S. Navy pilot. He was a U.S. Navy Top Gun pilot. Oh. He was that Top Gun. Fancy. And actually, about the time he probably would have been Top Gun in the U.S. Navy, probably would have been around when Top Gun came out. So he was like that guy. He was like the coolest he the person. Cool he was the coolest person alive. Basically. <laughs> yeah, person. That he experience was, is very pertinent for this episode. Yep. Yep. First officer, on the, on the other hand, is Peter Lipson. He was Australian. I do not have his age at the time. It's not in the report. It's not on Wikipedia. Same thing for the other person we'll talk about in a minute. But he was depicted as being younger. Yes. Peter Lipset, though, had 11,650 hours total, so not that young, with 1,870 hours of that being on the A330. Then there was a second officer. This was basically the relief pilot, because long flights. His name was Ross Hales. Don't have his age either, but he only had 2,070 hours total. Oh, okay. Of which 480 hours were on the A330. And he's flying an A330, which is... Wow. What was he? 
he's the second officer. Okay. Second he's officer. The so he's pilot. Yes. So he's just a relief a relief pilot. His function in the cockpit does not perform any of the critical phases of flight. Okay. If just that makes during sense. Cruise. Right. He he as a second officer really can only perform the function as a relief pilot during cruise flight. The flight departed Singapore at 9.32 a.m. local time with 303 passengers and 12 crew. The really nice thing about this flight is I get to stay in the same time zone for this whole flight because it is a vertically straight down flight Oh, from Singapore to Perth. Well, that's nice. Yep, so they're in the same time zone. Yay! That's the problem we've had the past couple weeks where it's like we passed oh through 50 god. different time zones. <laughs> the one last week. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> they crossed the international timeline. So, the dateline. Yeah. So, ooh, anyway. that one was awful. This one, on the other hand, does not change time zones at all. It's about a five-hour-long flight. The departure and climb-out were normal from Singapore. By 10.01 a.m., the aircraft reached its cruising altitude of flight level 370, with autopilot on and the speed maintained at Mach 0.82. I wanted to bring this up because we don't really talk about Mach speed very much, but... It's when you get above a certain altitude, the aircraft transitions into Mach speed because it's easier for it to maintain a Mach speed, which is a little less precise than trying to maintain knots. And what with Gulf streams and everything changing so much, it is much easier for them to maintain that Mach speed. There's quite a few other reasons they use Mach speed as well. But in any case, airliners above a certain altitude will use Mach rather than knots. Yeah. And they are at Mach 0.82. Remember that. This yep. is foreshadowing. Yep. The weather was clear and free of turbulence for the flight, and literally the whole way. Oh, that's nice. Kind of an important thing as well. The captain took a rest break shortly after reaching cruise flight. At that time, he was replaced by the second officer. 12.33 p.m., the captain then returned to the flight deck and relieved the second officer, so he had been out for, I think it was about two hours, basically. 12.39, the first officer began his break, at which time the second officer took his place. 12.40 p.m. and 28 seconds, the autopilot suddenly disconnected. And within five seconds, several caution messages came up on the ECAM, or the Electronic Centralized Aircraft Monitor. I will talk about the ECAM a lot. The ECAM is literally their computer screen in the cockpit, and it mm-hmm. tells them everything wrong with the airplane. It yep. monitors everything, and it tells them everything. We've talked about the ECAM in the past, but... On a previous Qantas flight. Yes. You might recall from the A380, because mm-hmm. that was the whole thing about the A380. Yeah, they had to clear all the messages out. And it took way too much time. Yeah. Simultaneously, the stall warning and the overspeed warning began sounding in the cockpit. Though only briefly. Does that sound familiar? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the crew canceled the autopilot caution on the ECAM. The crew then engaged autopilot two. So you only use one autopilot at a time. Mm-hmm. And basically it's kind of, I mean, this isn't exactly how it works, but it works a little bit like presets. So you can preset autopilot two to do certain things so that you can disengage autopilot one re-engage autopilot Mm 2 to automatically start the next portion of your flight, basically. Should that be a difference from what you have programmed? But that said, there's also different functions with autopilot 2. We'll talk 
a bit about that later on, but mostly it has to do with where it gets its data. After the cancellation of the Autopilot 1 message, the crew were presented with a NAV IR1 fault caution message. There were also a series of other caution messages on the ECAM, quite a few actually. The crew noticed at that time that the captain's altitude and airspeed appeared to be fluctuating rapidly on his display, but the first officer's side was holding steady. Well, if that doesn't trigger a memory. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this should be like... Ding, 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 ding. All sorts of things going off in your head. All that said, Autopilot 2 was engaged for all of 15 seconds before it too automatically disconnected. Awesome. <laughs> None of the ECAM messages were considered urgent issues, so the crew were continuing normally at this time, but having to hand-fly the airplane. That sucks. <laughs> Thankfully, the captain was the, was the person doing this. The captain was still not satisfied with the information that the aircraft systems were providing, so he asked the second officer to call the first officer back to the cockpit to help diagnose and manage the issues. Yeah. What's going on? Right. Why is this happening? Right. So... It would be helpful to have the first officer in the cockpit since he has a lot more experience and having the two most experienced people in the cockpit, of course you want them in this situation mm -hmm. where everything seems to be going wrong. Well, at 12.42 p.m. and 27 seconds, while the second officer was asking the cabin service manager via the interphone to have the first officer return to the flight deck, the airplane abruptly pitched down, nose down, very quickly. The aircraft reached a max nose-down pitch of 8.4 degrees, which, okay. We've talked about a lot more than that in previous flights, but it's a little bit hard to comprehend just how dramatic this was. You went from zero to eight degrees. In cruise flight. When, so. like, half the cabin has their seatbelts undone. And when the airplane is moving much more rapidly than previous flights we've talked about with much more dramatic changes in pitch. Not that those aren't also extremely dramatic, but this is heavy when the airplane is moving at over 500 miles an hour. So, question. Yep. They're hand-flying it, right? Mm -hmm. They are hand-flying it. Um... Is there a reason the airplane would have a reason to pitch down? We'll talk about that in a hot minute. Because I'm sure it has to do with the automatic stall system thingy. We'll talk air about... speed and stuff. We'll talk about that in a hot minute. Because <laughs> she's eyes. <laughs> Miranda, stop talking. I'm getting Boeing vibes. <laughs> I 100%... <laughs> I 100% expected you to. I just didn't expect you to do it this soon. Because we're not even close to done. Oh, God. I, I think I'm like a not even a quarter of the way through oh, my story Jesus yet. Christ. <laughs> I cried. It, it gets worse. This abrupt pitch down caused anything that was not secured in the airplane to strike the ceiling, including people. Yeah. That's why you're supposed to have your seatbelt on, even if the sign's not on. You're correct. Uh, and, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were performing drink service at the time? They were, yes, performing drink service. Oh, that's service. unfortunate. Giant <laughs> cart hits the ceiling. And the flight attendants. Yep. Yep. And I don't think they were in the middle of the aisles at the time, but there were people in the aisles. There always are. Whatever. There's oh, yeah. always people in the aisles. Oh, yeah. On my little 50-minute flight today, I swear to God, everybody got up to go to the bathroom. <laughs> 
We they, it was bumpy both ways, so the the seatbelt sign was only off for about ten minutes. And don't get me wrong, the bathrooms were occupied the entire time by somebody. Doesn't matter. There were just people in there the whole time, like in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. But also the like fifteen minutes before and after the seatbelt sign was off, people were in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. I don't know. Like I I I was like, it's fifty minutes. Hold it. <laughs> We're literally going to be on the ground in like 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> the guy sitting next to me unbuckled his seatbelt like 15 minutes into the flight. You still got the seatbelt sign on the freaking cabin crew still being told to be seated. It's not bumpy at this point. And he's holding his trash, waiting for them to come collect it. And he's really wanting to go use the bathroom. I'm just like, it's literally 40 minutes from now we're going to be on the ground. Stop it. Okay, listen. As a person who almost peed herself on an airplane, I, I understand. But there is a time for this. Because I waited till the end of the flight, and then I regretted my life because we were stuck on the tarmac, and I was like, "Listen, yes. I am a grown adult, and I'm gonna pee my pants." Okay, <laughs> I understand if you really have to go, please go. But if like you can hold it. There's not really a reason to use the bathroom. Right. Anyway. Sorry. Okay. Getting back to the story. Tangent over. The captain immediately tried to pull back on the side stick to correct the pitch over, but the flight controls did not respond normally. But two seconds later, he tried again, and this time the airplane pitched back up. With the pitch up, anything that had crashed against the ceiling now came crashing back to the floor. Oh, that's hard. The aircraft had only fallen 690 feet, but it did so in 23 seconds. That literally means... Anybody who was there in the airplane fell, free fell, 690 feet, mind you, because they were nearly in zero G. They actually went into negative G, but they were in zero G for the majority of this time. So the crash happened on the immediate pitch over, but then everybody was free falling for 690 feet. Oh, that's horrible. Yes. I don't like free falling when it's safe. Wear your seatbelts. Yep, if you learn anything today. The aircraft then returned to flight level 370. The aircraft had experienced a maximum acceleration of negative 0.8 G, so almost 1 G in the opposite direction, but not quite. The second officer activated the seatbelt sign and made an announcement to the cabin for all passengers and crew to be seated and fasten their seatbelts immediately. I would think that would be a good idea. No, really. Once the aircraft stabilized again at flight level 370, the flight crew began actioning and clearing the ECAM messages. So what this involves really is each one of the ECAM messages that would come up, there was generally a procedure for them to follow. So they would then do whatever the checklist called for, and then hopefully they would clear the message. Okay. 12.45 p.m. and 8 seconds, local time, while the crew were still working to clear the messages, the aircraft once again pitched down abruptly, this time only to a max pitch pitch angle of 3.5 degrees nose down. This was still a surprise to everybody on board, and though it was less severe, it still sent loose items soaring toward the ceiling. Yep. Once again, the captain tried to pull back on the side stick, but the airplane did not react until a second attempt two seconds later when the airplane did begin to react. And it recovered. The airplane had descended just 400 feet in 15 seconds before they returned to flight level 370 this time. Once the airplane stabilized again, the flight crew once again began clearing the ECAM messages, hoping to determine and correct whatever was occurring in the cockpit. And to the airplane period. 
This included repeat cautions, and none of the items seemed to be critical or immediately explanatory as to what was happening to the crew. So, they were all cautionary, not master warning, which means that they were only there as like a, hey, just so you know, something's up, but it's not an immediate issue. Well, obviously something's up. Something major is going on. Listen, Linda, I know. (laughs) (laughs) We know. (laughs) What is wrong? Right. The problem being is that they are continually clearing these messages and then receiving the same ones. Yeah, which means there's obviously the same thing is repeating itself. Yes, right? there are continual. So issues. even though they're clearing it, it's like, oh hey, by the way, in yep. case you didn't know before, when I already said it, right, this is happening. Right, and just to remind you, all the while they're doing all of this, the caution sounds in the stall and the overspeed warnings are all still sounding in the cockpit, causing a lot of distraction because the flight crew were unable to silence any of this. Okay, so this means this is probably what you mean by like. I probably don't know what's going on, which is fine. But, like, it has to be a pedostatic issue, right? You would think so. You Yeah. It is not. Because that would be the the one thing, right, which is why right. you said I wouldn't know the reason. It's probably why. Right. Because whenever we've come across this issue before, it's a pedostatic problem. Right. Something's happening with the pedotube. Something's happening with the static system. Right. There is a big reason why you wouldn't know why what's happening is happening, and we'll get to that later. Great. <laughs> I'm, I hope so. Do you think I would just leave you hanging like that? No. Uh, Sort of. Well, thanks. We'll get there. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 12.46 p.m. and 10 seconds, the captain made an announcement over the PA system to inform the passengers and cabin crew that they were experiencing issues with the flight controls. (laughs) (laughs) And he asked that everyone remain seated with the seatbelts fastened. Because they couldn't figure out by the two drops... That they already had, that they were having issues with the flight controls. Right. If a passenger didn't yell, no sh- Sherlock, I am disappointed. I know. 100% disappointed. I know. We can make these jokes this time because nobody dies. Yes. That does not make this a not traumatic experience, though. Uh, no, that would be I will ridiculously traumatic. I wholeheartedly say that for anybody on board, I believe this was a very traumatic experience in your life. And an awful experience. In your life. Well, because you're falling out of the sky. Yes. And like half of everyone on board is injured at this point. Right. Well, yeah. If you didn't hit the ceiling, you might have gotten hit by a body part of somebody else. Right. Or objects. Coffee pot. Yeah. The 23 and 15 seconds probably felt like an eternity to them. Oh, yeah. It really is. It's hard to explain just how dramatic this really is when it happens at speed like that. Well, so if you've ever seen videos of the Vomit Comet, yeah. you'll understand what it feels like to be in zero G. Right. And like... But the thing is, is that this happened, the pitch over happened so fast, that's when the damage really right. happens. And why that's really so dramatic at speed. I mean, of course you have that momentum, but it is, it, it is, I, I can't even begin to explain just what that really feels like. Well, because none of us have really felt it before. Right. I mean, I have done pitchovers at 120 knots, and that already is. Oh, I hate it. I've a done lot. minor stuff with Brendan, and I hate it freaks me out. So you can imagine when you're moving well over 500, maybe 600 miles an hour, this small movement down to 8.4 degrees like that is very, very dramatic. It's very abrupt. Well, and then set a timer on your phone. Run it for 23 seconds. Right. 
the fact that they only fell 690 feet, this is one of the things that I try to explain to people when we start talking about turbulence. They feel like they're falling out of the sky. I'm like, you are literally falling probably less than 10 feet mm-hmm. when that happens. They only fell 690 feet in 23 seconds. That's how not very far it takes to be very dramatic Yeah. in aviation. But that is 690 feet of freefall, which in any other circumstance is very far. It's very far. But you're not going to fall. Very uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, but you're not usually going to fall all 37,000 feet. No, not usually. Right. We've covered exceptions. Yeah. Immediately after this, the second officer once again contacted the cabin manager with the interphone, asking for the first officer to return to the flight deck. Was he buckled in? Get there. We can hope so. The crew noted at this time that the auto trim was no longer functioning. The captain then began trimming the aircraft manually. So the auto trim literally just keeps the airplane in level flight. Yeah. It's so not he's doing that. Literally flying it by hand. Yep, and it gets flying more and wire. more so all the time. We'll get there. At 12.47 p.m. and 25 seconds, the captain disconnected the auto throttle to ensure that it was not the source of any further upset since it was an auto-slash-computer-driven function. Yeah, and clearly their computerized stuff is not very not working, working. Right now. Yeah. So he disconnected that and decided that at 37,000 feet on their flight plan, he's going to do it all by hand. <laughs> so, and I know you're going to get into this, I mm-hmm. hope, mm-hmm. but did they contact ATC or anything to say, hey, can we land? Getting it. Okay, thank you. Yep. I'm like, please tell me that they decide, let's not go all the way to Perth this way. Right. Let's land somewhere. <laughs> right. So the captain was then hand flying or manually flying all functions of the airplane. Hand flying is the term we use in aviation for just manually flying the airplane. 12.47 p.m. and 40 seconds, the first officer finally returned to the flight deck, relieving the second officer, who then sat in the jump seat to assist when possible, which was really, it wasn't really a jump seat. It was a third seat. Yeah. It's what they call the third seat or the assistant seat. So... He can actually perform some functions in the cockpit. From the, it's it's in the middle between the two crew yeah, members, yeah, 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 and yeah. it allows him to actually do some of the functions. But he can't do anything with the flight. Part of that, and something I wanted to mention earlier, for those of mm-hmm. you who are painting a picture in your mind, mm-hmm. you might be picturing a control column in front of them, no. like in a they typical a, this Boeing is Airbus. I've been saying side stick because it is not yeah, a control it's a, column. It's a side stick that's attached to the side of their seat. It's a it's a, basically a joystick. Yep. It is a joystick. And exactly what it is. we've talked about it with like Air France 447. So I just want to make sure it's all in your head correctly. And they're also like, when you're trying to put a ton of force, like you have your one hand. Right. And putting a ton of force doesn't do anything. Right. Because it's a fly-by-wire. Exactly. That ton of force, it, it literally does nothing because that same amount of pressure is all calculated by the airplane anyways. Yep. This airplane is entirely fly-by-wire. There are absolutely no manual flying, absolutely no manual connection from the side stick to the to controls. The, the controls in the back, yeah. Which you might think that could be a problem at some point in time, but actually Airbus designed a lot of fail-safes for that. So I would hope so. This is not an issue that has come up very many times ever. Even with the Hudson accident where they lost everything, they still had electrical and just enough to fly the airplane because there are enough failsafes. So still not an issue. The first officer had been minorly injured during the rapid descents, but he was able to continue his duties normally. But he informed the other flight crews that there had been some other injuries in the cabin as well. I believe in the episode they depicted it as he had a broken nose. Ooh, because, yeah. Because here's the thing. It had only been just over a minute from the time he left his seat and left the cockpit to the time that they pitched over. Oof. He probably wasn't sitting in a seat yet. Nope. He was probably talking to the cabin crew or somebody and hadn't taken a seat yet or rested. Can you imagine anymore. that poor soul who's in the bathroom? 
I hope not. <laughs> we can only hope not. <laughs> I have to how imagine you, somebody was. How do you, with dignity, walk out of the plane afterward? I know. I have to imagine somebody was. You in the lived. Bathroom. That's how. They were in cruise flight with the seatbelt sign off. Very normal, nothing happening time of the flight. I have to imagine in a flight with 300 and I think it was 315 people on board. Something like that. That somebody's in the bathroom. Yeah. At this point in time when all of this happened. Statistically speaking, it's more, more likely than not. Yep. Unfortunately. They don't talk about that at any point in time, nor do I. Other yeah, than this. There's not really a reason to. <laughs> right. It's a little gross. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but you know what happened to someone. Yes. Yep. It is unfortunate. It is. This They're is probably why... not the only ones who soiled themselves. This mm-hmm. is why nope. we don't go to the bathroom on airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the only reason, but yeah, that's one of them. I still have never been to, in a bathroom on an airplane. It's ever. Not, it's nothing special. I only do when I absolutely have to. Yeah. It's nothing special. The crew discussed the situation and agreed that the captain would continue to fly the aircraft manually. Fearing that they could experience another pitch down at any moment, the flight crew decided that it was best to land as soon as possible. Yeah. They found that Learmont was the closest suitable airport for the A330, which was a relatively short distance away from the air- their current position over the Indian Ocean near the west coast of Australia. It was, I believe, it was 154 kilometers away. Which is not far. It's about just about enough time to descend, basically. Which is good for them. If it had happened an hour earlier, not many places they could have gone, actually. <laughs> 12.49 p.m. and 50 seconds. The first officer contacted the air traffic controller to announce a pan, or pan-pan, due to aircraft control issues and injuries on board. This is the short for panic. Yeah. We've talked about it in the past. That is the... It's not quite Mayday. No, it's not Mayday. Because this is saying we have an issue and we're planning not to continue, basically. But this isn't an emergency. We're not in a dire situation. He asked the air traffic controller for a diversion direct to Learmont. The air traffic controller acknowledged all of this and gave the flight instructions to descend to flight level 350. While the captain and the first officer were were preparing the aircraft for the diversion and landing, the captain instructed the second officer to obtain more information from the cabin regarding injuries. So at 12.50 p.m. and 40 seconds, the second officer contacted the cabin crew members on the interphone, of course. Yes. The cabin crew members specifically at the L1 door, forward left door, for more information, at which time he was informed that there were some severe injuries in the cabin. At 12.51 p.m. and 25 seconds, the first officer requested a further descent from the air traffic controller, at which time the air traffic controller cleared the flight to leave controlled airspace and fly direct to Learmont. This was actually an interesting thing. Basically, Learmont was not within his control or anybody around him. And because of the way that it was controlled, the airspace was controlled there, he couldn't give them a path essentially, other than direct to Learmont, and he was only able to do so by saying, I can't control you. So he cleared them to leave the airspace, which means leaving his control, and leaving control, period, and flying direct to Learmont, at which time they would contact Learmont Tower as they got closer, approach and tower and all that. 
but it wasn't in his control or anybody's for that matter. So that was a little bit of an issue for them. I have a logistical question. Uh-huh. So Airbus are uh-huh. fairly advanced. Yep. Do they still have to like use the little dial to tune their radio or does it automatically know we're going to this airport like preload this radio setting? There are functions for that in some airplanes where yeah, if you're if you have a destination set or something like that, it can automatically put that as the secondary frequency. Next frequency basically will change to But in a lot of airplanes, it's still a manual function. Okay, just wondering. It's pretty quick for them, though. You get used to turning those knobs really quick. You can change a frequency within seconds. When I was flying with Brendan, he asked me to change the dial. And with how bumpy it was where we were flying, that's hard. hard. It's hard. And actually, it's part of why in a lot of airliners, they moved the radio from a vertical panel to horizontal horizontal, so it's actually down on the throttle panel oh that's easier because it's easier to adjust something at your side than in front of you where your hands moving up and down and side to side it's gonna be easier for you to hold on to that button that knob down on the bottom so because it takes more focus to do like that and more precision to do that than a lot of other functions but they still use the autopilot on the vertical which is curious to me because interesting so be it After the second officer was finished communicating with the cabin crew, he updated the captain and the first officer about the severe injuries. With that in mind, the captain asked for the first officer to finally declare a mayday. Yeah. So at 12.54 p.m. and 25 seconds, the first officer announced mayday to air traffic control, informing them of the multiple severe injuries. This allowed the air traffic controller and the airport to begin preparing emergency operations for the flight. So once they arrived, they would have all of the emergency services that they needed. While en route to Learmonth... The flight crew continued to try to clear the caution messages, and they continued to encounter many of the same fault messages as they had previously. They eventually determined that the ECAM was not providing them with useful or correct information. Nope. I could have told you that. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. The flight crew then had several conversations with the maintenance, their maintenance, regarding the situation and the fault messages using a satellite phone, or sat phone, in the cockpit. Because they were all the way over in Sydney. So they were discussing all of the everything that's happening in the cockpit, what happened to them in the free falls, basically. Maintenance was unable to provide the crew with any recommended actions <laughs> at the time to correct the issues. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not laughing because it's funny, it's just uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. The flight crew did decide to continue to Learmonth at this time, I mean, they were like, okay, we really don't we're have already We're on just going to go. We're just going to go. Yep. The flight crew also discussed with the air traffic controller what their descent procedures would be and whether the approach and landing could be carried out normally. The gist of this, get to this in a minute. Landing, normal. Approach, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. They also discussed if there was any dangerous goods on board. This is an important procedure. We don't normally talk about it, but when an aircraft dis- declares an emergency, which in most of our accidents, they don't ever have the opportunity, they ask a few questions. How many souls? How much fuel? Any dangerous goods? Because yeah. if that airplane goes down, they need to know what's happening. They need yeah. to know what's there. The value jet? <laughs> yep. You're correct. The flight crew then made several announcements to the passengers to keep them informed of the diversion and any updates. On top of all of this occurring during the descent, the flight crew had to work together to perform all functions of the descent and the approach. This included the first officer assisting the captain in navigating the aircraft 
as they were unable to program the RNAV due to the ECAM fault due to an ECAM fault with the GPS system. So that also failed. They literally wow. couldn't even really navigate properly. They couldn't program in an approach or anything. So he was having to give them more specific like coordinates and how to fly and where to go. So this is a lot more thought they're having to put into their navigation than they normally would. As well as the second officer had to manually control the cabin pressurization during descent due to the ECAM fault with the pressurization system. Bruh! Come on! The whole time he's having to monitor the whole time and depressurize the airplane manually. That sucks. Yeah, normally this is a fully automated system on every airplane, and actually it is so automated, it is one line on a checklist on most airplanes, and that's it. Well, at least they had the ability to do it manually. Because they knew that it wasn't, wow, something's going real wonky with the avionics on this aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yep. The crew also noted that there was a fault with the auto brake system. Oh, good God. Come on. Meaning that they would have to manually, <laughs> they would manually have to apply the wheel brakes on landing, which does make the landing a little bit trickier. It doesn't mean they can't pull off a normal landing. It does mean that. They probably, I didn't find it anywhere, but they probably had everybody brace. Because usually if they have any issues with a system that assists them in stopping the aircraft on the runway, they ask everybody to brace. In the event that the airplane could overrun. Yeah. Because they might not stop. <laughs> so that's just my assumption, but I didn't read it anywhere. In order for the flight crew to descend the aircraft in a controlled manner... The captain performed several slow left circles near Learmont. So normally they actually probably would have had just about the right distance to descend the airplane directly into Learmont. Mm -hmm. But instead, get to this in a moment, he's descending slowly, very slowly. Is it more of like they don't want to poke the bear kind of a thing? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Let's go down. And the airplane's like, okay. And then just dips. Literally my next level. <laughs> He did this to prevent speed, the speed of the aircraft from overspeeding, as well as the descent. He did it very slowly in the event that they could experience another sudden pitch over. Yeah. After completing their approach checklist, and as the aircraft descended to 10,000 feet, the flight crew performed a flight control check. So they ran all of the controls basically all the way to the limits, making sure that everything functions right. normally. Everything seemed to be functioning normally, so that was a good sign. They then lined up for a 15 nautical mile straight-in visual approach to runway 36 at Learmonth. The weather's perfect, so this is not an issue yeah. that they're doing a visual, of course. But they have no instrument, instrument approach. <laughs> they have the, no choice. The avionics on this airplane are shot. Like, right. They can't do an IFR. Right. This is why they decided to do a 15 nautical mile approach, because it gave them a lot more time to see the runway, yeah. set themselves up correctly, and be on the glide slope. The flight crew had the approach lighting in sight at 10 nautical miles from the runway and were able to perform a normal visual approach. Good. The aircraft touched down at 1.30 p.m. local time, coming to a stop normally. The passengers cheered as they touched down. <laughs> I bet I would, too. That yep. is the only time that it is acceptable to applaud. Don't tell Ryanair that, because every landing they applaud. Oh, that's, that's disgusting. <laughs> That makes me not want to fly on Ryanair. <laughs> I've been watching TikToks lately, and it's like, he's a 10. 
but he applauds when you land. I'm like, <laughs> he's, like he's a ten, but when you land, he automatically takes off his seatbelt. Yeah, that too. <laughs> oh no, no, that's terrible, 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 terrible. That means he's a negative one, by the way. Yep, that's yep. deal breaker material. Yep. Emergency services were on site waiting for the aircraft upon arrival to help triage and attend to the injured. In all, 11 passengers and one crew member were seriously injured. 99 passengers and 8 crew were minorly injured. Holy crap. And 193 passengers and 3 crew were not injured at all. So That's sorry. because they Only were a injured. third. Yep. Only a third were injured. A total of 119 people were injured out of the 315 on it's board. It's because those other, you know... Yep. Hundred ish. This does had their seatbelt on. <laughs> this does make this though a serious accident. Well, yeah. I That's mean, of course it does. An insane amount of injuries. Actually, we don't even talk about that many injuries or death in most of our accidents. Well, to be fair, this is a big aircraft. Yep, very big. A lot of people. Yep, and that does start to explain to you just how dramatic this really was for that many people to be injured. Because mm-hmm. you know that not all of those people didn't have their seatbelt on. Yeah, it just was things falling. Uh, and hitting and going past them and yep do we know i didn't look into this do we know if any overhead compartments came open i don't know specifically if any of them came open but what i do know as for the aircraft some ceiling panels and overhead bins had been damaged due to the objects and people striking them the aircraft however did not suffer any external damage in this accident so the cover image on this report actually has just how damaged the ceiling panels and overhead bins were. Mm-hmm. Um, some people in the episode, the Air Disasters episode, accounted, they recounted there being blood oh. on some of the overhead bins. And it does look like some of them popped open. Well, the, to be fair, when you have a, a human body hit. Yes. A compartment, of course, is going to pop open. But that also means there's a potential for baggage. Yes, to come out, which is partly, probably part of the reason why people got seriously injured. And I have to assume that some did. There there were probably some... There is no possible way that they could design a baggage compartment that wouldn't come open when people hit it. Yeah. At a certain speed. Yeah, so the whole thing with that, because there was actually a line in here about... Damage to the interior structures was consistent with being struck by the human body. Yeah. Which means that there are, like, specific dents. Like, you could see where, like, people were injured hitting things because there was blood left behind, because there were, like, clear elbow marks. Yeah. Shapes of people's head. (laughs) On the oh, bins. Yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. this is all morbid and terrible, but the reality is this is what happened. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever seen, so baggage compartments on planes, especially older planes. Yep. You hit them a little bit, they'll come open. Yeah. It, they're supposed to pop open, like it's a safety thing, um, because if they can't come open, then you can't get your baggage and there's whole stuff around that. We, I think we covered a flight where they ended up having to change how they put the yes, we did. overhead bins in the ceiling because they would fall off. <laughs> yes, we did. That was a long time ago, but yes, we covered one where the uh, the overhead bins were actually found to have almost entirely disconnected from yeah. the airplane. And so they won't disconnect, but they will open because right. that's a, the safety precaution they have yep. so that I, they don't come off the ceiling. Right. 
I remember being on a flight. This was when I was really young. This was in the early 2000s, very early 2000s, when it was a 767. We were coming back from Belgium, landing at Dulles, and we hit hard. This was probably the hardest landing I've ever been experienced to this day. We hit so hard that probably about a quarter of the overhead bins open. Stuff fell out. Yeah, cause, and that can happen. Because mm-hmm. just the jolt down yep. can cause bids to open. Yep. I remember when that happened. And it was funny. I mean, people probably got hurt in hindsight, but I don't remember any of that because I was really young. But I do remember because that was the first touchdown. And then we came back down on the bounce after the bounce. And uh, after we rolled out onto the taxiway, captain came on and apologized. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for Whoops. the potential injuries. That was a hard one. But yeah, I mean, it's it's logical to think that if a human body hit the baggage compartment, it might have popped open and stuff might have fallen out. Yep. It happens. Yep. And on full flights like this, I'm sure all the baggage compartments were full. Oh, I'm sure. I'm certain. So. But this was, this was not a small thing in reality. No, not at all. That's kind of the weird thing about these... Quantas incidents is that they still don't have a hull loss. They still don't have death. But their but incidents aren't small. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> they're not just like runway overruns or anything. Like these are like pretty serious. I mean, it's pretty good things. flying that they were able to get this thing down. I was going to talk about this, but actually their crew resource management in this case was one of the best I've ever read about. And the captain was interviewed on air disasters, and he specifically said if he had not been a Top Gun pilot, he may not have been able to land that plane. Right. But also with the help of his first officer and second officer doing all these different functions that they had to do manually, they were all managing the cockpit and every part of it properly. They managed to do it all, give themselves the time. See, it happens. It really can be done. It can be done. (laughs) Heavy props to them. And to Qantas's training program. Right. These are the kinds well, of... Well, and just being able to, you know, spur of the moment. Right. If you think about it, right, if your plane just dips on you... Yep. And you're not prepared for it... Right. Like, that's that's terrifying. Absolutely. This, this is where, though, experience and training really proves itself. Yeah. And this is why, talking about some very similar incidents, Bergen Air and Aeroperu, since we haven't yeah. talked about them yet... Where those two incidents really lacked, and it showed, and we talked about that, of course. Yeah. But how they encountered pretty similar situations. Very similar. But they couldn't recover from it because they weren't trained to understand what was happening or how to deal with it. Not only that. And crew resource. Those happened on takeoff, right? Exactly. And this happened in cruise flight. Now, they had plenty of altitude to lose. Oh, you are correct. That is the biggest thing. Mind you, Bergen Air and Aeroprew both lost more altitude, though, in their pitchovers than these guys did. Well, Which they did at a slower speed, too, which also means that it was still really dramatic, but not as dramatic, and everybody probably was seated with their seatbelt fastened. Yes. So So in those instances... Even though, unfortunately, they both ended in complete disaster. During those descents, they actually might not have been as severe as this one. No. But my point being is, at least, it did happen twice, but they were up so high that if they lost a thousand feet of altitude, they had plenty of altitude to recover. The other big difference between this and the other ones, this was in daylight, those were in the dark. Exactly. Exactly. It's a factor. But the biggest factor is the fact that they were at 37,000 feet. Yes. 
All right. Uh, normally, this is where I would begin, but that was a lot. So we're going to take a quick break break here. Yep. And we'll come back and find out what the happened. Yep. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, everyone. So I do want to preface my part of this episode with saying... It has been a long time since this has happened, but I consider myself underqualified to cover this part. I am not a computer engineer by any means, so a lot of this went really over my head. Hey, that's like me every time I read a report. <laughs> so Fair you enough. can't be as bad as I am on every Miranda soda I record. Fair enough. <laughs> that, that is valid. Um, <laughs> so just think of it that way. It can't be as bad as me. <laughs> I mean... I also want to say, though, so normal reports are outlined to be section one is the history of flight right. and all of the facts and details. Section two is the analysis. Section three is the conclusions. Sections nope. two, three, four, and five are all analysis. Yep. I did hardly read any of it, to be perfectly honest. This was also a 313-page report. That's ridiculous. pretty long compared to most of the ones we do. So there's a 100% chance that I don't talk about something. There's a 100% chance that one of those things is I don't cover why all of those warnings happened. Okay. I also get a lot of where I'm going with my narrative and my facts and details from, from the, the episode. From the episode. Because they made it. Palatable. Palatable. Yeah. For sure. Hey. <laughs> yeah. That is not the word I was going for, but good on the two. <laughs> That's the word I was going for. Me too. They made it accessible to me, who doesn't under... I mean, I understand some programming. I'm not a complete dunce. Quite frankly, I think even computer engineers would have a hard time with this one because avionics computers are programmed very differently from what computers we think about are. Oh my gosh, I tried reading it. I tried. And I had like a nervous breakdown this week while I was trying to do it. And was it as bad as the mountain Erebus? Erebus? Erebus, yeah. I cried harder. This this was intense I stuff. feel like you... A <laughs> little bit of thing about Christy. If she can't absolutely understand something, she freaks out. I get really upset. Which, like, you're, the whole point of this entire podcast, realize that... Is to learn. We are not complete experts in oh, this no. field. No, but usually I have some, like, some kind of grasp on what's happening. This one, I was like, I have no... App, I've, Forgive if me. you have ever figured out how confusing some of this might be, go listen to that episode. I'll link it on the blog page. It's so confusing. This one, yep. like, forgive my French, but I had no f-ing idea what was going on. So, again, most of it comes from air disasters. There is one part I cover they don't, which is good because Nick talks about it. <laughs> yep. And it is, this is, it's, it's a lot. What we're going to get into is a lot. And it is... It's not meant for the average human being either. No. And it is... So I'm glad someone requested, multiple people requested that we cover this, but I also apologize if I don't cover it to the depth and precision that you wanted. And also, if you are a computer engineer... If you understand this any... Yeah. Degree I, more than I Or do. even I would, if you've 
like worked on avionics on airplanes because I'm sure we have people on here that have. This will be something more for an avionics technician yeah. than it would be for a computer engineer because avionics, actually avionics programming and creation is pretty much its own niche thing that's completely yes. separate from computer engineers. This really requires a really specific kind of engineer. Mm-hmm. And I am 100% open to doing a follow-up episode if someone wants to come on and talk about it, we have the means of doing a phone interview. I am all about it because I know I will not give this the full depth that it deserves, but I'm going to do my damnedest. So if you understand avionics, call us. Please, seriously, email us, message us on Facebook. If you know somebody, have them listen to the episode and help us figure it out. Because And there's been cases like this before where we will not cover everything or we might get something wrong. And that's right. because literally we are not experts in the field. We don't know. Right. <laughs> We're just trying. So out of my depth here. All right. That being said. Preface over. What happened? This investigation was performed by the Australian Transport Safety Bureau or the ATSB. We Honest, don't talk about them often. No, we don't. But honestly, when we do talk about them, it's one of the most impactful things there is. Usually. Also, can they please follow the standard for reports? I mean, good God. I am surprised with that because this is the same uh, entity that managed to make black boxes standard Yeah. in the world. Speaking of, great segue. The good news is they got it all. They got the cockpit voice recorder, the flight data recorder. And the quick access recorder. Right. Let's start with that last one. Couldn't the quick possibly. access recorder or the QAR. It is literally quicker to access. Yep. Couldn't possibly be because they had the whole airplane. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't possibly be that <laughs> they actually have the entire thing intact. <laughs> yep. <laughs> After plugging the QAR into a computer, they saw that it recorded two elevator movements corresponding with the two pitch down events. Neither was directed by the pilots. Both were internal computer driven commands. Just to double check. Investigators performed a function test on the elevators, and they worked as intended. So, something weird came from the computers. Investigators interviewed the crew, since, you know, they had them. Yep. Who both described how everything was totally normal from Singapore, and then chaos ensued, and took them completely by surprise. They said they had an absolute avalanche of error messages, faults, warnings, cautions, you got it. And the computer seemed to have a mind of its own. They also mentioned how they retrieved the error log. The A330 has this nice little feature where it prints out the post-flight log of all the errors, warnings, cautions, etc. that transpired over the flight. And this thing was a novel. Oh, I bet. Because they kept getting the same faults and issues over and over and over again. Yep. Investigators took that error log and poured through it. There were so many errors from seemingly unrelated systems one right after the other. First officer would clear one, and it would come right back. In digging through the root of each error message, they came to find a common thread. The Adaroo 1. The Air Data Inertial Reference Unit, or Adaroo, is a device that receives information about the outside environment from the pedostatic system, the total air temperature probe, the angle of attack sensors, the GPS, and it relays the data to the relevant systems. There are three on the A330, and it seemed that there was an issue with the first one, as all the errors seemed to stem from it. Let's go to the flight data recorder, as it contains a lot more in-depth information than the quick access recorder. This is where investigators found something rather odd. In figure 20 from the report, which is on our website, investigators depict the autopilot, altitude, and angle of attack. 
They also bracket off the time period with the two pitch down events. Miranda, what do you notice is odd? I'm looking in between the two black pieces, right? In that time frame. Look all the way up and down. Anything weird to you? The captain degrees. Yeah. The AOA. Yeah. Angle of attack. The angle of attack. Can you describe what it's doing? It's like going up and down. Peaking. Peaking. Spiking up and down. So the angle of attack spikes numerous times to 50 degrees and then back to flat. Which, like, it's not what the airplane's doing, obviously. Exactly. So there are three angle of attack sensors on the A330, one on the left side and two on the right side. Each one feeds to a different Adaru. So that means the angle of attack sensor on the left side was somehow feeding bad data, maybe? But the thing is, a, it's a vein that's spelled V-A-N-E. That kind of vein. Yep. It physically can't just zip from zero to 50 and back to zero repetitively and randomly. It's impossible. Especially in cruise flight. Investigators pulled the raw data and poured through it. Line by line. Bit by bit. They were looking at binary data to do this. Ugh. Thousands of lines. Good on them, because... No, thank you. Nope. Somehow, some way, the data for the altitude was getting switched every so often with the angle of attack data. Since the angle of attack can't be in the tens of thousands, it reverted to its maximum value of 50 degrees, and for some reason that I'll get to later, the system took that as valid data with which to operate the airplane. What? Wait a minute. Okay, this is where... You were talking about the autopilot system, right? Mm -hmm. So were they just, if they had switched to the other autopilot system, would they have? No. Would it have changed? It it feeds from the captain side? So She'll get there. Because if, okay, if you look at the graph that we talked about earlier, it says captain, which means it's coming from the left side of the aircraft. Correct. That doesn't necessarily feed the autopilot one system. It. I'll get, I'll get to it. Yeah, she'll get to it. It's. Complicated. So, it's so complicated. <laughs> How these airplanes were engineered is, first of all, it's a marvel. They're, it's incredible. It really is. But this also... Is, this is also such a one-off <laughs> event because of how well they engineered this. But they, the investigators literally say there's no way they could have foreseen this happening. So. I'm very surprised that it even was able to do this. You should be. Okay, let's okay. keep going. <laughs> What exactly would happen if, for whatever reason, the system considered that to be valid information? Investigators took this information to Airbus. You know. Hey, Airbus. It sounds like a smart idea. The f***. Yeah, pretty much. Airbus had implemented protection features on the A330. Cue everyone having deja vu. And two of those came into effect during this incident. The first was a stall protection feature. Aha! I told you! (laughs) So... For those of you who may be new here, an aerodynamic stall is very dangerous. Very. You become a paperweight. Yes. And Airbus wanted to design protections such that if the crew began stalling, the plane would help them get out of that stall in case they were disoriented. Miranda, how do you get out of a stall? You push down. On the nose. Yep. So, this protection mode can take effect at any speed and any altitude. Though, the angle of attack threshold must be exceeded for two seconds if they're below 500 feet in altitude. This is the biggest reason Air France 447 didn't get protected. 
And it can happen at any configuration. And to prevent a stall or help get out of a stall, it pushes the nose down by four degrees. Okay. The second protection mode was an anti-pitch-up protection, much like a similar aircraft you might think about that we haven't talked about. This is very cough, similar. Cough. Boeing. This cough, is very cough. similar to an MCAS. <laughs> that may be on a certain kind of aircraft. This is cough. MCAS before it was cool. So <laughs> this aircraft had a tendency to pitch up. Cough, cough. <clears throat> Maybe the thing that starts with M, cough, cough. This aircraft had a tendency to pitch up at higher airspeeds and in a clean configuration, as in gear up, flaps up, up. So Airbus wanted a protection here if the angle of attack got too high. So they made this protection mode, which gets put in effect if the Mach is 0.65 or up. Oh, well. It can happen at any altitude. And it does happen if the gears retracted and the flaps are up. Well, guess what? Well, you're in cruise flight, so. (laughs) Gears retracted and the flaps are up. Because all of these conditions were true. It pushed the nose down six degrees. So together, the two protection modes pushed the nose down eight degrees. Ten degrees. Oh, I thought you said eight degrees. It maxed out at 8.4, but they were showing this as being consistent with the 10 degrees nose. The elevator was set to 10 degrees nose down. Oh, okay. Correct. And now for one of Miranda's favorite phrases. This isn't the first time it happened. Nor was it the last. Okay, listen, Linda. (laughs) It's actually, this is, this gets really interesting. Here's the thing though, because the problem with providing this kind of protection, and we talked about this on a post episode after we watched the Boeing documentary on Netflix. And if you haven't watched it, I highly suggest you do. We had a whole conversation about it because there's a whole bunch of other stuff that fed into that too. But if you don't know that this would happen, that this is a cause, that it would happen multiple times, that it would literally happen in the middle of flight there is no way for them to predict it to happening so they just think it's fine there are some and you're correct but there is some really curious things with this in particular versus the mcas she'll get there so investigators dug through records and found that a similar incident had occurred a couple years earlier in 2006 also off the coast of australia does it have to do with jet stream stuff And then after Flight 72, another Qantas flight two months later had this happen also off the west coast of Australia. There's something to do with winds there then. This was when the media went a little nutso, okay? There was clearly something happening to the A330 that was environmental. Yes. Agreed. So the media had this crazy theory my God, as they always do. Yes. Probably ridiculous. That this naval base outside of Learmonth was emitting huge <laughs> levels of electromagnetic radiation, which oh was God. messing with the systems. So, it, okay, okay. But listen, like, they were all in the same place. It's kind of weird, right? So. And this all happened in such an interesting period of time in a similar area that they felt like possibly, maybe, perhaps, they're not wrong. What's the worst that could happen? So they went and did a test flight. They ran the exact same airplane through the same area. And their test flight had sensors on board to measure electromagnetic radiation. And nothing happened. Nothing. No, shit, Sherlock! (laughs) Come on! 
I'm sorry, but every time we cover something that has a conspiracy theory, the conspiracy theory didn't happen. What do you Come know? on. Also yeah. interesting to note, the testers and investigators also use their phones on board making calls and texts to see if that had any effect on any of the systems. And it didn't. So You might add this is still a sore point in most of aviation, but airplane mode is pretty useless. Okay. The, the reality is your phone isn't going to work after no, about five minutes into flight. No cellular service up there. There's no reason to have your phone on. It's the... You have to be 13,000 feet above in over... I think it's a hundred and... I think it's... Oh, I don't remember... No, I think it's 230 knots or something like that, or 190 knots, something like that, and your your phone will not be able to get data. It cannot collect that fast. It can't. There's no way for it to. So, I don't know. They've debunked this before, too. Mm -hmm. Phones don't provide that much interference, especially nowadays, to avionics and airplanes. No. They just don't. There are still some, like, really critical systems that they're like, okay, they just want to protect it. They don't want it to be an issue. Just in case. The reality is, if this was an issue, we would obviously be experiencing this far more often because... I guarantee not everyone puts their phone on airplane. Oh, no. I've forgotten. Most definitely do not. The only reason you should actually is for you and not for the airline or the airplane because your phone will keep searching for service and it will drain your battery. Yeah, pretty much. Which is what happens when you put it on and you don't turn it on airplane mode because it's on airplane mode. It's not searching for signal. So it saves your battery life. Okay. So there's one black hole that... Useless. Yeah. So not the naval base, but investigators wondered if outside influences could have had an effect. They exposed the Adaru to high electromagnetic levels. Just straight up in a test situation in a lab. Nothing happened. Nothing weird. They wrapped it in a heat shroud and ran a super high data load on it, and it worked just fine. In the heat. Because they're thinking maybe it's the weather in the area, since it's all happening in the same place. No. Which is a tropical environment, by the way. In the end, investigators didn't find an actual cause for the switching of the data. They never figured it out. It's probably some programming error. Basically. Yeah, I mean, there has to be something in the code to the avionics that just... But clearly something environmental in that part of the world was causing it, though. Yeah, it had to have been environmental, because if it only happened in that part of the world, on that kind of a flight, there's no other way. aircraft. So, (laughs) and yeah, so there had to be a certain issue with atmospheric pressure or something going in the static system or whatever. I'm not going to dive too much into it. They didn't figure it out. There's the cliff I leave you on. Right. And we will add that the incident prior to this one wasn't as severe because it only happened, I think, one time in flight and it didn't dip as hard. And then the incident after this one, it was... Just far enough after they this had incident heard about it that they heard about this and issue. turned off everything. They immediately turned off everything and managed not to go through the pitch over. It started to pitch down. They immediately disconnected everything. So they, they managed to collect it. The good thing I will say, because and we might end up getting to this at the end of the episode. Who knows? Uh, but the good thing about Airbus is they do put in good fail safes. So usually, you yes, can turn all that automation off. But. So, let me continue. So, investigators did find a way to prevent future incidents. It was a matter of a software change. Yeah. (laughs) Here's where things get complicated. And that's where the air disasters episode left everyone. And that's not good enough for me. So, here we are. Let's get into the nitty gritty on why those spikes and angle of attack 
got accepted as valid data. To do this, we have to analyze the logic of the system. I am so sorry. <laughs> God. Oh, Jesus. Okay. We're looking at a very... Complicated graph. And complicated It's a chart. yes or no graph. Chart. We are looking at figure 28, which is the algorithm for processing angle of attack data. We also have to return to middle school statistics. Do you all remember what the median of a data set is? Is oh, the median... The middle... It's the middle value. It's the middle value of the whatever it is, right? So what the system would do is it collects each angle of attack sensor data 25 times a second and checks the validity of each by comparing it with the median of the set. So three angle of attack sensors, 25 times per second, that's 75 segments of data. You take the median, you compare each value to that median. Right. Cool? The first question in the flow chart... Does the data point differ from the median? If it does, the next question is whether or not the angle of attack 1 or angle of attack 2 is the one putting the outlier data. Let's follow that path of the incident and say yes. The system will then use the last valid value for 1.2 seconds. It's called a memorization period. After that 1.2 seconds, it will use the average of the next angle of attack 1 and angle of attack 2 values as the system value for one sample length, so a 25th of a second. As far as I can tell, it's doing this whole calculation 25 times a second. That's nuts. ridiculous amount of data. Insane. Now let's back up to that first question. If we answered no to whether any angle of attack started to differ from the median, the next question is... Is any angle of attack different to the median for one second? If yes, that error data unit or that error data reference gets rejected for the rest of the flight. Makes sense, right? Because it's an error. If it's an outlier for more than one second, we're just not going to use that sensor at all. And then the other two sensors will be used to calculate angle of attack for the rest of the flight. Now, there are four Scenarios of changes in angle of attack where the sensors read something different, and one of them was the accident situation. Get ready for more graphs. If the angle of attack 1 has a step change function, meaning it immediately changes from the correct value to the incorrect value and stays there, the system will see that it remains different from the other sensors for over a second, and it will reject that error data reference for the rest of the flight. Right. Cool? Cool. If angle of attack 1 has a runaway value, meaning it increasingly gets more and more wrong, it'll take the system to recognize that as being wrong because the deviation from the median was so small at first it almost accepts it as valid, but then it's like, no, you're totally wrong, and it will reject it for the rest of the flight. Cool? Instance 3. What if the angle of attack 1 spikes? Well, the system has that function where it will take the last valid data for 1.2 seconds. So as long as the data isn't spiking when that 1.2 second memorization period's over, we're all good. And the data still gets used. Instance four. What if that spike, what if there was a spike right when that 1.2 second memorization period is over? Well, now the system will adjust the angle of attack to be the average between angle of attack sensors 1 and 2. And this instance, and in this instance, it meant the system thought the angle of attack was 25 degrees. And the protection modes kicked in because that second spike was counted as valid data. Hmm. Does that make sense? Kind of. Like, I understand why it would reject the first three. Mm-hmm. 
because it's a change from the median for an extended period of time. And it has that memorization period. And as long as it's not the same at the end of that memorization period, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Do you get into why airspeed is also very important here? No. So it makes a lot of sense why it would also go into a stall protection mode and stall warning. I mean, obviously the AOA is the primary for this in this scenario where they're clean gear and flaps. But speed is also critical because, remember, they reversed. And if the angle of attack is zero, his speed suddenly says zero. So his. What do you mean if the angle of attack is zero? If the angle of attack sensor is reading zero, Mm -hmm. and that data is now feeding his speed. It was switching with altitude. Or sorry, it was spit. Yeah, you're right. It was switching with altitude. So his altitude is, but his speed was also going nuts. Yes, because they're all freaking tied together. And I, exactly. this is all going through Adaroo 1. So airspeed, temperature, GPS. Yep. That's all feeding through that same component. That's so are they getting out. all these air systems from that same Adaroo? Yes. Yep. So everything that they got as a caution. All came from Adaroo 1. All came one. from Adaroo 1. The only thing is, is that with the Adaroo 1 does not drive the pressure system, the pressurization system other than altitude wasn't functioning. So that's the only reason that the pressurization system didn't function. And then the issue with the GPS, that one's not tied to the data here. Yes, it is. Well, it's not tied to the faulty data. It's not tied to the faulty data, right. But the faulty data was saying Adaroo 1 is erroring out, so everything tied to Adaroo 1 was going can't be used. Anything that needs data from Adaroo 1, which in order to calculate GPS in an accurate way, it wants to use your current speed, altitude, and angle of attack. And GPS data was coming from Adaroo 1, too. Right. GPS data was coming from Adaroo 1, but it needs these things to feed the data into the airplane. So another part of this data processing system was a rate delimiting function, which does bring it back to normal after the spikes end, which is why they were able to continue going. And I highly recommend if any of that made absolute garbage nonsense to you, go look at figure 29 on our website. It puts it in really good visual terms, how the data processing chooses to reject or accept data values. The good news is, because the anti-pitch-up protection mode had a 500-foot altitude limitation, this accident could not have happened on approach. That is it's really good to Good know. news. See, that's one of those things that Airbus designed really well. The angle of attack would have had to been high for more than two seconds, and the logic system would have rejected the data if it had been. It would have rejected it if it, if it was wrong for more than one second. Right. Furthermore, the anti-pitch-up protection mode wouldn't have happened on approach because it can only happen in a clean configuration. And I really hope that you have your flaps extended and your gear lowered when you're on approach. Yep. Or unless you, like, lose hydraulics or something. But at that point, it's like you got more problems in the stall pressure Usually, yes. Yep. And to put it in more blunt terms, this also couldn't happen on takeoff, unlike some other planes that had a pitched issue on takeoff because of a stall protection system that may or may not rhyme with the urn keys <laughs> and may or may not be the 737 max yeah so that's what i got i'm still sorry it's not okay so maybe you lot. can help me understand this graph because I'm, okay. I'm having a little bit of trouble under so if you're looking at the graph it's it's figure 29 okay so I understand there is an error is it the error 
like is the the monitoring threshold is that the error threshold? Yes. Okay. So, so if it's above that, it's erroneous. If it's yes. above that for a certain period of time. So if it's anything above that, it triggers this memorization period. Right. So you'll notice in the second instance that it's not above that monitoring threshold at first. So it starts to think that it's valid data until it reach the, reaches that threshold. And it's like, oh, wait, hold up. This might be wrong. We're going to put on this memorization mode for 1.2 seconds. And if it gets better, gets better. If it gets worse, nix the system. So for, like, C, the spikes, mm-hmm. why would it cut it off for there? Because at the end of the 1.2 second memorization period, it's technically, quote unquote, back to normal. And it does not cut off. Right. You it might, continues using that system. You might, oh, okay. You might so, notice that in A and B, it says ADR1 rejected. The other ones don't because it doesn't reject the data. Because really, data spikes will happen occasionally. No data processing, like no data intake system is 100% like not going to get spikes every now and then. So what about D? Because at the end of the memorization system, it's technically the same as it was when it started. But it's also running this whole processing system. 25 times a second. So it sees that it went back down to normal levels. Oh, okay. But at the end of the memorization period, it came back up. So it's like, it's valid data. And for some reason, it thinks it's like, that is a fault that no one could have predicted. And investigators talk about that. Having spikes exactly the time apart as the memorization period is what caused this oh so d is the d is the what happened yes d is absolutely what happened and it happened there's there's evidence that it happened repetitively so what you see here the yellow line is what the system now considers the angle of attack you see that it went up to 25 degrees in this instance okay what if it happened 1.2 seconds later again so it just thinks that that's... It thinks that that's the data. That's the data. Well, and every time that memorization period goes, if it hap- if a spike happens at 2.4 seconds, that angle of attack is going to bump up even more. Right. Okay. That makes more sense now. So I, I didn't understand originally that the first two was rejected and then the third one was taken and the last one was the accident. Yes. Yes. So if you're looking at the graphs, now it makes more sense. The bottom one, D, is the one that happened via the accident. Right. And it's why it didn't disconnect. Yep. And investigators consistently talk about how they don't fault necessarily the programmers, because how would you have predicted that? There's no way to know that. Right. And there's no way to test that either. Nope. It was such a specific set of circumstances. Yep. Don't fly that plane on that specific route at that specific altitude. Well, what they ended up Pretty doing much. is they changed the programming. They got rid of the memorization period right. altogether. Yep. Which, like, if you understand that that's the problem, you're like, all right. Yeah, just change the software. Yeah. And they didn't right. take as long to do it as some other companies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will add that this has also happened. A very similar thing has happened to the A321neo since they made the A321neo. They, it happened after the MCAS incidents, and they were having pitchovers also on climb out, much like the MCAS. However, 
Airbus being Airbus, they built in a pretty robust override yeah. that the pilots were aware of. So they were able to correct the issue, and all they needed to do was send out a software update, and it was fixed. See? How ridiculous is that? Isn't that great? (laughs) (laughs) When all you gotta do is send out a software update and it fixes the problem. I wanted to talk just briefly about how, what an AOA sensor really is. Because you can look at this on on any airliner when you walk up to it. There's a picture of them on the website from this aircraft. And it's pretty self-explanatory actually once you look at it. But it is a free-spinning, quote-unquote, free-spinning vein. Right. If you know anything about a vane, literally whatever direction the wind is traveling, that is the direction it's going to want to point. Because it points in the direction of least resistance. So imagine it looks like a little tiny, itty bitty, teeny tiny wing that's usually on the nose of the airplane. Yep. Somewhere toward the nose of the airplane. And they'll have them on either side so that they have the extra data. But the wings on an airplane are normally fixed. So they are traveling. And this is a really good way to explain angle of attack as well. Because your wing is always going to be pointed in the direction of the nose. Right. The direction the airplane the physical airplane is actually pointed. Yes. The AOA sensor will always be pointed in the direction of travel. Of airflow. Right, of airflow. So the airflow and travel are not necessarily always the same thing. No. Well, no, not if it's from the side, but it is the direction of airflow. Well, all, we've talked about before, if the wind is strong in one particular direction, right. it also can affect your stall angle. Yes, it can. But that's because it also affects your AOA. Yes, it affects the airflow. Angle of attack is the difference between the direction of the plane and the direction of airflow. Not right. travel, airflow. Right. Because, and I, I mean, go back to like episode four. We talk about this with Colgan Air. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Colgan Air was also dramatic because there was icing on the wings as well, which changed the dynamics of the wings. So that's part, also part of the reason. But if you don't understand how airflow goes over the wing to keep it elevated, you're not going to understand. And I mean, we've covered angle of tack like 50 times probably. Here's a really easy thing. If you have any form of flight simulator, which there's some simple ones in the app. There's some simple ones you can get even for PCs, whatever. Take a Cessna because they all have a Cessna, every single simulator. Take it up to a thousand feet and... Fly it with full power and then start to reduce power and hold that thousand feet. Watch what happens. You have to keep pulling back and pulling back and pulling back. Suddenly the noise is pointed way up, but you're still flying at the thousand feet all the way until you stall. Then it can't maintain it anymore. That angle of your nose up to that, to where you're actually flying at a thousand feet, that's your angle of attack. Mm -hmm. That's not your angle, your, what do you call it? Pitch angle. Pitch angle. Thank you. It's not your pitch. That's your angle of attack. Your pitch, yes, is above horizon, which is also going to be dramatic in this case. But the vein on these airplanes helps them calculate that. And it's what calculates for the computers for this stall data because it's independent from the wings of the airplane. So it actually goes into the airflow. So it's separated from the wings and it tells you basically the airflow that's supposed to be going over the wings needs this range of data for AOA in order to not be in a stall. And then the AOA sensor points into the airflow and if it deviates so far from the wing that it knows that it's not getting airflow enough to maintain the airplane's altitude anymore then you're in a stall yeah simple as that so there you go there you go okay there are findings for this and i'm not doing them because it is literally like 30 pages of data and it is not bullet pointed Mm-hmm. There are paragraphs. It's all written out. It's very over-explained. Yeah. So they're not findings in a traditional sense. So I'm not doing them. 
There's also no probable cause. There's also no recommendations. However, there are safety actions. Because by the time this report actually came out, which I think was 2011, all the Google image pictures that they have in there are all from 2011. So I'm just assuming... That it's 2011. It's around 2011, 2012. That all of the things that they figured out along the way, they were able to work with Airbus so directly and with Qantas so directly, they pretty much changed everything they wanted to change along the way. It was published in 2011. There you go. Ah! So within those two years, having done tests and research three and everything... Years. Three years. It was published years. in yeah, okay. December of 2011. So okay. Three years. Okay. Three years. So in those three years, they managed to get enough research data and everything and work directly with Airbus and Qantas and so on and so forth to actually be able have to... Have safety actions to prevent this. Have happening. safety actions already yeah. in place instead of having to do recommendations. But recommendations, yeah. Yep. So I will just run through them in a little bit of a brief sense. The biggest thing, of course, that they changed was the AOA data and this memorization. The avionics. Period. Yep. Yeah. The avionics. The coding and programming for the avionics. Fixed. Now, Updated. Now it doesn't have it doesn't have that memorization period. It just is like, oh, and, this is erroneous data. Okay. And what it did <laughs> because of that is it also built in another failsafe. Right. Basically. On top of other fail-safes, on top of other fail-safes. So I have this to say, just can't happen again. Airbus does a really good job at programming fail-safes. Yes. They're really good at, like, if this doesn't go right, here's the alternative. And if that doesn't go right. Then here's another alternative. And if and that doesn't go right. Then just fly the airplane. <laughs> Pretty much. The alternative ultimately becomes the pilot. Which worked, by the way. Which is mostly why we won't ever really have automated completely automatic airplanes, but... Correct. And Cathay Pacific, no, you cannot put one pilot in a cargo airplane. No, no. you cannot. No, 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 no. They're trying really hard to get the A350 cargo version certified for single pilot operation. No. No, you're <laughs> trying to be cheap. Right. And it's the safety problem. What if someone has to go to the bathroom? Well, Airbus tried to prove themselves because they developed a system that allowed the airplane to taxi, take off, land and taxi on its own. That's I don't care. Great. But what if something goes wrong like this and there's a 50 other erroneous warnings? The airplane's not going to figure it out on its own. Exactly. And a pilot really isn't just there to be a button pusher. They really are a safety device and they really are trained for so many things. And they're trained to feel what it is to fly, which is a very different thing than just protecting an airplane. Sounded painful. It was painful. That's a whole conversation for another time. Other things that changed. Oh, my God. They have so many. They have so many. The, the, <laughs> the funny thing is, is about every single one of these safety actions that they have. It's like two pages worth of stuff. Oh, my God. Because they talk about each part of it, how it was redesigned, the system, how it was certified, the certifying authorities, how that was pushed to the the operators, so on and so forth. Some arise. Right. That's what I'm doing. And that's what they should have done. But anyways, <laughs> I, I appreciate their detail because it proves to be pretty invaluable over the years. Yes. But for our purposes. Correct. Bold a summary statement for us. Another thing I'll add to all this, though, is that they did, and this comes up as another one of their minor safety issues, quote unquote. They applied all this to the A340 as well. Because the A340 is basically exactly the same airplane with two more engines. That's it. 
So there's no reason that these systems should be designed any different either. Nope. And so they are. So they implemented all of these things under the A340 as well, so that this isn't it's not a problem as well on the E340. Yeah. They never proved that it could be, but they also didn't want to. Listen, sometimes you don't have to. <laughs> you know, it's better to n- not have to prove that it's a problem. Right. Being, and just fix it before it's happened. Being proactive is marvelous. <coughs> Boeing. <coughs> yes. Sorry. Was that too on the nose? Yes. So Airbus participated in all of that. Yes, the angle of attack sensor is on the nose. Yes. But, uh, right on the nose. Sh- Wait. When they did this as well, it wasn't just an Airbus effort, and the safety action involved the developer of the Adaroo, which was Northrop Grumman, and Northrop Grumman actually got deeply involved in redesigning the Adaroo for future aircraft beyond just the coding of the aircraft. They actually redesigned the Adaroo to be a lot more efficient with data, essentially, and so that was a whole part of this, but it, it the Adaroo as a whole still serves the same function. Nothing really changed about what it does. It's just how it interprets data. But because they were changing certain things that were designed about it to interpret data a certain way, they then had to redesign the unit also in certain ways to accept different data. Long and complicated and roundabout way of saying that this is fixed. So... The use of seatbelts was a big thing for them as well. Oh, yeah. Use them? Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I, and I don't know, because I didn't fly before, like, 2009, potentially. I didn't fly before, like, 2013. Oh, and it might have been later than that. Um, But they constantly tell you to yes. keep your seatbelt on in cruising flight. Unless you have to, like, do something like go to the bathroom. Yes. And there's, I mean, if there's any example of why you should do that, this this incident, this accident is absolutely one of them. Well, and we've covered other stuff before, like, um, Aloha. Yep. I mean, do you want to get sucked out of a plane, potentially? I thought it would really happen. Also, one of those... Not now, but you never know. One of those minisodes we covered. Yep. Yep. You can, and the turbulence. I mean, you never know what could happen. You really don't. And so this is just, it's just a smart thing to do. And, you know. I know it's not the most comfortable thing. What you can do is loosen it. But yeah. keep it tight enough that it's still going to hold you down in the event things go flying. You just got to understand the reason behind it. Because I know a lot of people complain about it. Like, oh my gosh, why do we need. You know, this is why. Why do we need to keep them on when clearly there's nothing happening? You don't know that. You don't know that. They were in cruise flight doing absolutely nothing for hours before this happened. And listen, Linda, there have been pilots, a.k.a. cough, Delta, that have flown into thunderstorms. Yes. Okay. And when that happens, you you encounter ridiculous amount of turbulence. Yep. And I mean rough turbulence. So in case you want to hit the ceiling. Yeah. You don't know. You don't want to hit the ceiling. <laughs> Avoid the injuries. So put on your seatbelt. Basically, the safety action that they both recommended and that was somewhat used is they recommended to Qantas to perform a study of seatbelt usage in cruise flight. Basically, just count how many people are using it on every single flight. Yeah. Find out what the average is, and then figure out the way to make them do it more. The only real way that they 
pushed for this, and you'll hear this in a lot of messages, and it's still something that they do, but they don't enforce it enough, if you ask me, is they'll state, please be sure to attach your seatbelts on the outsides of any blankets or clothing, your outermost clothing, so that we can see it and we don't have to wake you, because they will. They will. And even with the seatbelt sign off, oftentimes they will when they're doing drink services or food services. And this isn't this isn't something that they enforce often enough, if you ask me, only because there's not a, enough ground, I think, for them to stand on that when you're seated and the seatbelt sign's off, they can't force you to wear it. So, if you've ever encountered people... <laughs> Yep. No, I'm I'm being 100% serious. People are belligerent. Yep. They just won't do it. And federal regulations mandated that we wear masks. Do you yes. know how many people went against that? Yeah. And literally were like yelling at flight attendants over it. I mean, come on. Well, and we know how this goes. The more you tell people not to do something the or more to they, do something, the more they're not going to want to. The more they don't want to do it. Right. So... The problem is, I think, and I, to be perfectly honest with you, I would not have known this without doing this podcast, mm -hmm. is the reason why you need to keep your seatbelt on during cruise flight, right? I don't sure. think a lot of people really understand the reason behind it. Because right. there's not as much visibility on it. We've talked numerous, hundreds of times about crashes on takeoff and landing. So people accept that they should wear their seatbelt on takeoff and landing. Sure. Fine. But there's just not enough visibility and awareness on what can happen in cruise flight because it just doesn't happen all that much. Right. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And that doesn't mean it doesn't happen because it does. And, the you know, you're going to be that person that goes, no, I don't want to do it. It's uncomfortable. Okay, you're going to be the person that hits the ceiling of the aircraft if something happens. Right. And you're going to break something or you're going to break someone else or you're going to hurt yourself. And you cannot sue the airline. You can't because it's your fault. They warned they you. They told you to keep it on right. unless you absolutely have to get up to, you know, go to the bathroom. If you need to stretch your legs for a few seconds, understood. But that is your own risk taking if you don't wear it. Right. You can't sue the airline because you decided not to wear your seatbelt. Right. And I mean, honestly, that's the big thing. I think and being a teacher and understanding teaching and kids and the way kids think, if you don't tell them why... They don't want to do it. If they don't understand why you're doing something, they don't want to do it. Right. Right? Okay, cool. Because I have kids that like, I'm sorry, I know I'm going into a weird church gym. No, but okay. I have kids that eat in my room. I hate it. Yep. It was clearly approved upon from their previous band director. I don't like it for multiple reasons. And they asked me why. And I go, okay, well, if you're playing instruments, your mouth should be clean. Right. Okay? You're going to get stuff in your instrument. You're going to gump it up. It's going to be disgusting. Yep. Also, we get mice. In our building, our yep. building's really old. Yep. Okay. We get mice. If there's stuff on the floor and it's not picked up by the custodians for whatever reason, I get mice in my room or I get bugs in my room and I don't want that. Right. right. So if you don't, if people don't understand the why, and I feel like a lot of people nowadays don't understand the why of why you need to wear your seatbelt in cruise flight, <laughs> they're not going to want to do it. Yeah. They're uncomfortable. And it's not just the why, but also the believability of the why. And to be fair, does it happen very often? No. Well, it's no. never happened to me. It doesn't, doesn't happen to, to happen anybody to I know. Takes one one time, friendo, one time. Right. <laughs> okay? Don't be that one time <laughs> to yep. prove the fact that you should be wearing it. Yep. So that's a whole thing. And the final safety action that I'll talk about is it's kind of a curious thing. It's 
I I don't blame them for bringing this up, but also we might be thinking a little too hard on this. And that is they called this single event effects or SEE. And this is analyzing, interpreting and expecting when testing and certifying avionics and equipment and so on and so forth. Anomalous single event effects. But how would you know? Right? Like, that's great that you can try to test, but how, literally, how would they know that this happened? Right. So, so what, but, coming from a programmer's perspective, you put in a 1.2 sec- second memorization period. What if something happened at that 1.2 seconds? That's they, the question they're expecting you to ask yourself while you're programming. Because there's an infinite amount of things that can happen on this graph, essentially. They're saying that D should be expected. And if that happens, to make sure that you're certified in a safe way to handle it. And they weren't. Well, and that's, to be fair, yes. But you also have to imagine when building an airplane and building avionics and testing avionics, there's a billion other things they have to test at the same time, right? Yep. So they put in this 1.2 second memorization period on this one system for this one thing for one instance. Right. And you're expecting them to be able to test for that one instance, but there's a billion other one instances they also have to test for. I think this one's a bit extreme. Yeah. I do too. And it's a bit unrealistic. At the time that this report was published, they said in March 2010, the FAA advised the IECTS 62396 was being considered for inclusion in future aerospace recommended practices, which is to include this SEE. What they had not done was actually include it yet. I don't know if they did. And even if they did, basically, they would have had to do an abbreviated form of it because, there's, like you said, there's still no way to there's no way come to up with know every eventuality. Every single event, single instance event that could happen. Right. Because let's say this didn't happen. They tested for this. They figured out, okay, this isn't a thing. We should get rid of it. Right. But what if there's another thing over here that they didn't test because they were testing this thing? Right. And so, I mean, the problem with testing systems that you've made but have never you know, never experienced before is like, how are you to know that that would happen? Right. I mean, and to be fair, if you're testing this one system, you're focusing on this one system, it seems so easy. Yep. But like you just said, there's an infinite amount of ways for this graph to be, right? Exactly. How would they know to test for this one instance? Right. Yeah. It's a bit unrealistic. So. So that's pretty much it. Yeah. But. Let's talk about a couple of interesting things. QF-72 or Qantas Flight 72 still exists, and it's still Singapore to Perth. It is done with an A330-200 and not a 300 now. Still fly it every single day. It's a 200 now, I can only imagine, because Singapore pretty much holds that market. They fly it like four times a day with A350s and 777s and and such. And there's also competition from a few other airlines that didn't exist at the time. Mm -hmm. Also, COVID is still a factor in that part of the world. There is that, too. This aircraft, specifically, VH, what was it, QPA, is still flying, and it just did a circuit to and from Bangkok to Sydney today, on August 19th, when we're recording. So, it's currently sitting in Sydney, it's been there actually for a while now, Uh, it doesn't have its next schedule yet, but it is still flying, and still very much an in-use aircraft by Qantas. So, just to put it in perspective, they really don't scrap. And this airplane wasn't overstressed either. But that 
the interior probably had to get fixed. Yep. That was probably about it. They probably looked at the airframe to see if it was overstressed. Yeah, they did. And it wasn't because the airplane was designed to handle these kinds of things. I mean, it was handled to design what the avionics were handled, were designed to put it through. That makes sense. So it wasn't wasn't overstressed, but the cabin was damaged because of the things that hit it. I was stressed. Yep. (laughs) Everybody was stressed. (laughs) So, we have a listener question. From, you guessed it, Lieutenant Spock of the USS Enterprise. So, I don't remember if he said that this was a question. I don't know if it's a question. It might just be comments. Because he likes doing that, which is fine. Um, Do you want me to read it? I'll read it. Okay. Only because I don't have a lot of stuff to do during episodes. <laughs> so, I like, I like reading stuff at the end. You have to justify your presence. Exactly. Because some people think I'm useless. Anyway, not that I'm bitter or anything. Okay, so he says, so there I was. I appreciate it. If you don't understand where that comes from, you need to listen to the last couple listener episodes. Listening to the Suriname DC-8 accident episode, thoroughly enjoying the Miranda rage. You're welcome. I figured (laughs) I'd try to get inside the mind of the crew a little bit. So I looked up some more details of this accident, and I'm pretty sure I figured out some stuff. Great. First of all, the captain, as you stated, was too old to be a legal captain and was not current on the jet, which, by the way, huge problem. We talked about that in that episode. There's a particular characteristic of very senior pilots, which is common to experts in many fields, I'm sure. That is, they become defensive when confronted with their weaknesses. Absolutely. Yep. I hate to say this, but especially old white men. Um, Yep. (laughs) And Anybody can do it, though. Oh, yeah. Yep. And bet your bottom dollar this captain was not comfortable doing anything other than an ILS. This is why he had his PM, or pilot monitoring, watching the VOR step down altitudes on his side. While the captain treated himself to a nice, luxurious ILS approach like he was used to doing. Secondly, I hear you screaming, the ILS was not a legal approach at this time. It was not. You are correct. However, even when an ILS is no-tammed or out of service, it generally is still giving you useful a useful signal. That's true. The and it reason, was. Yep. And the reason they have to identify it as quote-unquote unserviceable or quote-unquote out of service is because the antennas need to be periodically evaluated by an air test. An, an in-air test. test. Excuse yep. me. Using an aircraft. Yes. An aircraft has to, has to use it to make sure it's correct. And if an ILS is out of date, it is technically, quote unquote, out of service. Correct. That doesn't mean it is bad necessarily, just that it hasn't been checked in a while. Clearly, this ILS was, quote unquote, unserviceable for a very good reason, which the captain didn't like hearing. Admitting the ILS was no good would mean that he had to demonstrate his lack of competency on the VOR. You are correct. That simply isn't acceptable. So he forced a bad situation by sticking with the bad ILS. Thirdly, the visibility was below approach minimums. Why would these very senior pilots shoot an approach to a runway that didn't have the required visibility? Well, it comes down to geometry. When you're looking at a bank of low-lying fog from above, it can be pretty easy to look straight down and see the ground through the fog. True. Because you are only looking through a few hundred feet of fog. The problem is is that when you look down a slanted three-degree glide slope, you have a great deal of 
less visibility because you're looking through the hypotenuse distance. Ha, geometry, bringing it back. Look, we did geometry, we did (laughs) statistics. Thank you for the math. I like it, actually. I mean, it's true. If you you ever think you wouldn't learn, you know, use the stuff from high school. Perhaps a mile or so, meaning there's more fog between you and the runway threshold. Still, you might be able to see the runway, just a lot less clearly. Problem is, once you get down to the ground, or below glide slope, then you're looking straight and level through the fog. The total visual obstruction is now at its maximum. And despite being able to look straight below you straight below you and see ground pretty easily, you forgot that the runway wouldn't be as easy to spot. Correct. Yeah, so it um it kind of makes sense if you understand what the hypotenuse is, which for our friends who have not been in high school for a very long time, uh, if you have a right angle triangle, right? Yep. The hypotenuse is the long side. Yep. And so it makes sense that there's more fog between you going straight up and down than you out because you're looking through instead of down. Correct. Right. So to sum up, this accident could have been prevented if the captain had simply admitted, hey, I haven't done a VOR in a long time. Back me up from your side, please. Dial up the ILS if you want to monitor it. But remember that it's unserviceable. Given the bad visibility right now and the fact that we have way more fuel than we need, let's hold until the fog bank blows out. Of course, American pilots also tend to look on meteorological information in other countries with a bit of what I'd call disdain. True. As in, yeah, this third world equipment is telling us the visibility is only 800 meters. I bet it's not really that bad. I can see the runway from all the way up here. Additionally, it's legal to commence an approach for an airfield when the weather is calling below minimums if you can clearly observe that the weather is not as bad as the current report states. And that is correct, which they saw the airport, so they didn't think it was as bad as it was. So that is correct. That's why they were allowed to pro- they were allowed to do their approach and landing and they were cleared to land by air traffic it's control dumb, when it was technically below the minimums for the airport. Anyway, hope you like this context. Hope you hope this context is helpful. As always, love your show. Keep your airspeed up. Thanks. It's not really a question. It's also not really it's, a story, but it's, it's helpful. Good, it's and good it's great. commentary. And I love that this comes from a true pilot and he's really he's backing up a lot of what we said and also giving some more Context. Context, but more pilot perspective specifically yeah. on exactly what this is all like. Which we're really grateful for because you, you might may or may not know this, but none of us are actually um pilots. <laughs> I mean, I have some hours, but and I've spent a lot of time. Okay, but how, how many hours do you think that Spock our, has? Our, oh, believe me, I know. Our friend Lieutenant Spock has way more hours than any, including Brendan, any of us combined. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course, of course. And way more experience. And that's great. That's why I like these perspectives. So I really I bet appreciate so. it. I bet we've read more NTSB Jesus. reports. Maybe. Uh, to be fair, reports are very dry. Yep. Oh, yes. You don't go to reports for entertainment purposes. No, but you should go to learn. And hopefully we're doing a decent job of summing these up enough to learn from. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyway, that was Qantas Flight 72. Yep. Hi, Key. Appreciate you guys sending in recommendations. We know you've been sending in a few more. Since we said something. Yes. <laughs> if you'd like to send in a recommendation, a few things. I know I covered this in a previous episode not that long ago, but I just want to be completely clear. Look and see if there is a report. In English, perfect. Number one. In English, preferably, sometimes we can translate it. We've done it in the past. Electricity. But a report is a good start. (laughs) And turtles. A report in any language is already a good start. Yes, but the way you can figure that out, 
If you send us the Wikipedia page... It's usually in the references. 99% of the time. And how if you can tell... Yep. ...is it's usually a PDF. Yep. And it usually says, final report. Right. <laughs> if it's not there, look for the ASN or Aviation, Aviation Safety, Safety Network, Network, because they will always have the final report. Well, if it's available if online... It's available. If so, it's available anywhere on the internet, go on. Go they'll to, have it. Go to the ASN page and scroll down to where it says probable cause. And I don't know what wonderful soul runs that website, but if there is one, there will be a link. Yes. To PDF. And it will show you the actual front page of the report. Yep. So if you can't find it on Wikipedia, try to find it on the ASN page. Before you send it to us. The only reason I say that is because I don't like telling you guys that we're not going to cover it because there's no report. Right. Because. Uh, that being said, also, sometimes, especially with the NTSB, they're notorious for doing this. There will be a report, but it'll be like seven pages. They have these little small reports that they usually do for general aviation. They're bulletins. They're like accident bulletins. But they actually say report on them. They do. If you find one of those and want to do it for a mini-sode, great, we'll take it. That's where we've gotten a couple of the mini-sodes from, and they're actually, they Pretty turn good. out they turn out really good, because there's some really interesting ones. Yes. But be aware that they're going to be a mini-sode, yeah, not a full episode. Yeah, and mini-sodes are usually for patrons. Right. So be aware of that. Um, when you do, I mean, I lo- we do love getting your recommendations. If we can schedule it, we will. Right. If it's not already scheduled, because some of you are like, let's do this one. I'm like, fun fact, someone already requested it, so we'll add your name to the list. Right. Or make sure that we haven't already done it. Yes. Uh, We came across a few of those lately where you're like, let's do these. I'm like, fun fact, we've already did that like a hundred episodes ago. Go listen to it in episode four. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, or something like that. It's usually not that far bad. No, but still. No one has recommended episode four again. I think that one was pretty strong. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes, especially with some of... We've covered a little, a few weird ones, not like super weird. Also, be aware if it is covered in a Miranda sode, we will not cover it in a main episode. You can look at Miranda sodes online. I do have them posted under the Patreon page under Miranda sodes. There's a list of those on there. If it's listed on there, we're not going to do it as a main episode. So be aware of that too. Right. All right. I think that's enough for that. Uh, if you want to see what's included with the Miranda sodes, you can be a patron. $10 patron gets you Miranda sodes, and I've covered over 24. I think it's over 30 at this point. Yes. And with each one of those Miranda sodes is also another post episode, much like we do for these main episodes. So there's even more extra stuff. This is why I say we put more stuff on Patreon by far and away than we do just on the regular yep. podcast. Oh, yeah. Easily. So if you want to see what's included with that, check that out. Thank you to our patrons. We do appreciate you. Thank you if you're listening. We highly appreciate you. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. We'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.